Hello, friends. Welcome to the Cedarville Stories podcast. Today on the show is Jim Stevenson, president and supporting instructor at the International Center for Creativity. Listen as he shares about his vision and his passion for design. Now here's your host, Mark Weinstein. Thank you, Sarah, for that introduction. I'm Mark Weinstein, and welcome back to another episode of the Cedarville Stories podcast. I'm so glad you joined me today. Today's podcast may be the most unique podcast since we started sharing Cedarville stories a year and a half ago because my guest, Jim Stevenson, is involved in so many different kinds of activities. I am fairly confident you'll find my conversation with Jim to be inspiring. Jim is the president of the International Center for Creativity, but for Cedarville University purposes, he's brought the industrial and innovative design program to Cedarville University. Jim is well-versed on many topics ranging from the IndyCar racing to fine arts and obviously teaching and using his platform to serve people by sharing the gospel. Jim, welcome to the program. It's always good to talk to you and always good to see you. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time to really get into a lot of your stories because I know you have a lot of stories to share. I want to get to the Industrial and Innovative Design Program at some point and why you started the ICC, but I'm really fascinated at the outset uh, with your connection to IndyCar racing. Um, What role did you play with at the IndyCar racing team that you were part of uh, a few years back? Yeah, so my role was marketing, public relations, and sponsorships. Uh, Race cars don't run on gasoline, they run on money. And we always had to have corporate deals, corporate sponsors, all those stickers that you see up and down the driver's uniforms and on their helmets and on the cars all come from corporate partners that are looking for uh, to align themselves with the metaphors that come from racing, you know, speed, performance, technology, teamwork, precision, whatever those things might be. Uh, so uh, part of my role was to help them activate that sponsorship. And I, I spent a little bit of time in, in NASCAR. Uh, I spent two years in NASCAR with uh, uh, Phil Martassi's team uh, called Philmar Racing, and Kenny Wallace was our driver, and he was insane. He was a fun guy to be around. Uh, but I quickly learned that was my first foray into professional motorsports. Uh, I had helped some local guys out just tinkering with their cars, and I, I loved to work on cars and, and got you know involved in that way. But I learned that drivers were great marketers because there's no feeder system like there is for football or basketball or baseball or all these other sports, there's no little leak, right? You know, you have to bring your own money and all the equipment that you're buying costs just as much as the equipment the professionals are using. And, you know, there were big bills. So I learned that, you know, the drivers were incredible marketers and it was just a great environment. So I I worked in in NASCAR for a couple of years. I managed the Square D uh, sponsorship and it, it was just a great introduction to a global brand they were owned by Group Schneider, uh, still are, and there was, there was a French company, and then they had the kind of the DIY brands and all these collaborations, and it was such an incredible environment to learn my craft, but I, I really liked cars that turn left and right, so um, NASCAR was interesting because it was cars, but I was really interested in um, open wheel racing and formula racing, Indy cars, Formula One, that sort of thing. So where was this in Columbus or where were you living? Where was this? Ta- where did this take place? Yeah, this was right in Central Ohio. There's a lot of racing in Central Ohio um, that people aren't really aware of. Some of the teams are actually more famous elsewhere, but they happen to be based here. It's because of our close proximity to Indianapolis. 
Um, but it was called Tasman Motorsports Group, and we were based in Hilliard. And Tasman was the offshoot of what used to be True Sports. So True Sports was a big team that was owned by Jim Truman, the founder of Red Roof Fans, uh, and they had an incredible success uh, back in the back in the eighties. And their uh, crew chief at the time was uh, Steve Horn, who was the crew chief. And Bobby Rahal won the 1986 Indianapolis 500. And uh, in a very, very sad story, not too many days after uh, Bobby won the 500 with Steve as the crew chief, um, Jim Truman passed away of cancer, but he got to see his dream uh, fulfilled. And uh, Steve broke off and started his own team, and Bobby went and started his team. So we had this thing called the Hilliard Cup. And of all the trophies that we competed for, this cross-town rivalry between Tasman Motorsports Group and uh, Ray Hall uh, Letterman Racing uh, at the time uh, was like the one that we wanted to keep track of the most, of who got this little you know, $5 trinket from the mayor of Hilliard who was going to win you know, the Hilliard Cup. What a great experience. So how long did you work with the IndyCar racing team, and what prompted you to leave this opportunity for other situations opportunities yeah that's a great question I, I was with the team for over over three seasons as a team member and then we continued to consult for the team when i say we it's where i met my uh, current business partner and the other co-founder of the icc tom balliot he and i were the marketing department and um that's that's when we met each other so uh, i got to tour go through three three full seasons with the indycar team and then the team was sold and i had a option i had a job offer to go with the team to chicago and it was owned by uh, jerry forsyth who owned another team inside of of um, the cart fedex championship series and i really didn't want to relocate and i was also getting these tugs that uh, my first uh my oldest son michael was born at that time and i started getting these tugs that i really wanted to be home you know i, I really felt like i was traveling so much um you know you you leave on a Thursday and you don't get back till Sunday night or Monday morning. If it's a West Coast race, you might not come home between races. So you're gone for like 14, 15 days at a time. And, you know, when Kim and I were starting a family, like this really isn't optimal. And, you know, when you find yourself going, boy, I really, I want to be home. And you realize there's somebody on the other side of that rope that would like to have your job. You're like, well, look, if I'm not mad passionate in love with being here, somebody else should take this position. And I still got to keep my my foot in racing because uh, tom and i split off from the team level and started a company called formula marketing and formula marketing part of our uh, body of work was doing sponsorships for the sponsors that we had at the team and for other racing series so we worked with the ferrari challenge we worked with grand am racing uh, which is now part of imsa uh, indycar indy lights and it was a it was a great opportunity for us to parlay a lot of things that we had learned there uh, for other teams. But then we also did commercial marketing. We did global product launches. So a lot less travel, still got to keep our foot in the paddock and keep our friends and our network inside of motorsports, uh, but without family challenging travel that came with it. So that's really what the sparked the decision to say, hey, it's, it's been fun. It's been fun to be in the circus, uh, but I'm, I'm going to take a step back. So from there, I'm, I'll fast forward some years, and ultimately, uh, 
you create or develop the ICC. Uh, through that, you've, you've created so many different ventures that I'm aware of through the ICC. In my mind, you're really an entrepreneur with a ministry mindset who likes to make a difference in the lives of people that you teach, that you interact with. Uh, you've done that with me. I, I really appreciate, it, appreciate that. How do you intentionally weave your faith into your daily work and life? Yeah, I don't know that I'm doing it incredibly well. Um, I, I, I strive to do that because I, I think to, to be creative, you need to know the creator. Uh, and it's a humbling of every day realizing I don't, I don't want to ever pretend that I'm the smartest person in the room. I, I, I always want to come in thinking, and very often, most of, most of the time I'm not. But I like to walk in and think to myself, wow, look at all these unique creations, all of these people that come with different thinking and different points of view, and all the learning that I, I, I can get from that. I think that's biblical to be a servant in, in how, you, how you treat people. And I, I don't always execute that well, but I strive to, to, to do that. Um, but I, I, I think it's really, to me, I don't think of myself as a, as a Christian business person or a Christian entrepreneur. I think of myself as an entrepreneur that's a Christian. And I think to myself that excellence is a great testimony. I appreciate your testimony there. Using everything that the Lord has given you to turn back and do with excellence and actually instill that into the, into the students at the Industrial and Innovative Design Program and everything else that you're, you're a part of. So keep, keep going on that way. I want to transition a little bit because I mentioned a little bit ago that you've started a lot of different initiatives through the ICC. And one I know is really dear to your heart, the Kosovo Leadership Academy, which you started as a way to help reshape the nation after its devastating war for independence back in 2008. When did you start the academy and why was it important for you to do that? So uh, the way we found each other, um, Nadine Hennessy, who is a graduate of Cedarville, um, was uh, called to the mission field. And if you, if you haven't read her book, uh, When You Don't See His Plan, wonderful book uh, that documents Nadine's story. And I, I don't want to give any spoilers because you really need to read her story, how inspirational it is. But she ended up as a single mom in Kosovo. So she started the House of Laughter. And then fast forward almost a decade, all those kids were growing up and needed schooling. So she had this vision to develop a K through 12, a K through 12 school. And she contacted the ICC at that time to help with the curriculum. So our role uh, was it was really to help uh, supply curriculum and a point of view and experiential learning, uh, a learn by doing and design, you know, based on design thinking and innovation. So she found us, came over and visited the ICC, and it was a real God moment. It was a God appointment because, you know, I, it's not every day that you get an email from someone from the other side of the world from a country you've never heard of, and then someone that says, hey, I, I'm interested in what you do. Could I stop and look? I'm like, of course, we love guests. Um, she spent the whole day, she talked to students, spent about six hours. And then came in my office afterwards, I'm like, wow, you know, what did you, what did you find? And she had just a notebook full of, of feedback from the students. I said, well, what else can we do to help and to, to get this school started? And she, I said, you know, maybe we could send you some uh, material. And when I said it, it sounded so lame when it came out of my mouth. I mean, here's somebody that living in this post-war experience and here i am emailing or something right and i'm like oh, what, if it, 
that didn't feel very committed. And I'm like, well, what if we had Skype sessions with your new faculty and we could train them? Because I thought, well, maybe that's a little better. And as soon as I said that, that, that sounded really lame. Like I'm phoning this in. And over her shoulder across the office from me, I had a dry erase calendar. And a circle on it in, in October was fall break. And it just, at that moment, I'm like, I just looked, I said, how about if I came to Kosovo and experience this, you know, what you're trying to solve firsthand and meet kids and meet parents and meet local officials. And, and she just lit up and she was like, well, I was hoping that's where you were going. And we've had a number of students and faculty that have gone over and experienced and run workshops and uh, taught in the school and, uh, my role, I can also help them get introduced to other entities in the community. Uh, and it, it's just been an incredible ride. And it's so great to see that we're just at the beginning of what this can be, because the dream is to have an ICC in Kosovo. Okay, so not long ago, five years ago, so a short period of time. What have you seen in those five years of how the students in Kosovo are benefiting from this Leadership Academy? Oh, it, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing to watch what happens when students realize that somebody loves them. And I, I can see how this ties back to back when you were at, with the Indy Car Racing Team about you know developing or, or gaining a big world brand idea. I mean, this is this is a big idea that you would never would have had five years earlier, right? No, it's very true. And the part of what it took the intimidation factor out of the travel and, and all that sort of thing. Cause I didn't, we were just used to travel. It was not a big deal to jump on an airplane and fly to the Balkans and be a part of that. So there's not an, you know, they took away that barrier um, where at that point it was just normal course of business. And uh, we really wanted to put the I in ICC. We've had, you know, Cedarville is such a, a, a international school. People don't realize how international students go to Cedarville and we get to share in that with our uh, with the uh, industrial and innovative design major. We have a lot of international students that come here just for our program. But what's interesting is that I think that's not a well known well known fact. Uh, but on the on the flip side of it too, we wanted to become more committed to the nations. We wanted to become more committed to an international outreach. So this was just a perfect fit right when we were praying about it. You mentioned the uh, Industrial and Innovative Design Program, and that's where I wanted to go next. Uh, I believe Cedarville is the only Christian university in the United States with, with this kind of program. Uh, can you share with us some of the accomplishments of your students uh, and what really brings you great satisfaction as you work with these students day in and day out? Uh, they inspire us. Um, there, there's so many aspects of it that inspire us that they finally find a home. Uh, school, traditional school is not really designed for creative types. It just isn't. Um, and we've known that for a long time, but there's been a struggle on how to accommodate it. And, and we were blessed with an opportunity to be able to bring a completely new model and even refresh how industrial and innovative design is taught. Um, you know, it's present at maybe 60 programs across the United States. Uh, but everybody had a little different spin on it. It's, it's a rare major that can live in a Bachelor of Science, Bachelor of Arts, or Bachelor of Fine Arts. And it was because it's a triangle, industrial design is a triangle between business, engineering, and art. And some programs would be able to emphasize one maybe over the other. Um, but we had an opportunity to start from scratch. 
you know, and create one that our clients were saying, hey, we'd really like better talent faster and we want creative problem solvers and we want more than just people that are moving pixels around on a screen. And we got to build that program from scratch. So when we get to see students that finally find a home, right, they get here and they thrive. Sometimes a prospective student visits, it makes the parents cringe, but I love a good C-plus student um, because it probably means they were bored, right? They're, they're an A in something. We just don't know what it is yet. The, the challenge is to unschool them and, and remap a little bit of their thinking so they're not afraid of failing because failing is, is critical to creativity and innovation. So it's an inspiration to watch those moments where a student has that aha moment of, wait a minute, I failed and it felt good, right? And I'm not so scared about grades anymore. Grades are important for assessment, and I get all of that. But, you know, as the, the Einstein quote said, not everything that counts can be, can be counted, and not everything that can be counted counts. And, you know, this was a physicist that was basically saying, uh, look, logic will get you from point A to point B, but imagination will take you everywhere else. It's so important to cultivate imagination. I'm interested, still in the, on the program, why is the industrial and innovative design program, as well as the track in the MBA, why are those programs successful at Cedarville? Uh, well, it's a God thing. I mean, we, we show up every day and hopefully we don't you know, mess up what he's doing. I think what we're offering, I think what we're offering is, is in, in, through his inspiration is something fresh. I think we're offering something that feels void in a lot of other locations. Um, the industrial design, we know we can make them great designers. It's not really the most challenging part of it. Our biggest challenge is to make sure that we're building kingdom builders and that they can use their, their creativity and their innovation to reflect him to be creative image bearers of, of God. So I think sometimes the student isn't always seeking that. Their parents are sometimes understanding how valuable that is. That when you can teach creativity from a worldview, uh, it's different than teaching creativity from a, a Christian worldview. Jim, I want to transition and, and I want to talk uh, maybe a little more personal uh, topics with you uh, as we uh, move through this podcast. Um, First, I want to start off with um, something I learned that uh, I recently, yeah, I recently learned that you built a house on Mount Desert Island in Maine. Sounds really cool. It sounds really neat. Did you, did you design this house knowing that you are a design person? The customization of it, yeah, the, the interior, um, uh, Tom and I own it together. It's for our families, uh, but we, we did design it the interior together. Yeah. So it, it, you know, obviously COVID's put a little bit of a, a wrinkle in, in things, but, uh, you know, I went up like last year I went up for, I winter hiked up there by myself for a week. It was a week of, of study and I, and I have a guitar up there and I got to play and do those kinds of things. And I hiked in the park by myself. So I spent five, six days up there and then I went back up spring break. Uh, and, and then I'd say maybe five times a year, uh, I try to get up, um, it's really a retreat. It's so easy to get there. Um, you know, they're really short flights to, to get there. And, and um, uh, it's just such a, uh, a way to unplug and, and retool. 
and uh, I love being in nature. I love being outside, and one of the prettiest places in the world. Yeah, I, I, I know it is. Uh, so a little bit ago, you mentioned music, uh, a guitar, uh, and I want to switch to to your interest in music right now. Um, one thing I learned as I was doing research uh, for this podcast is that just how much music has impacted your life. Uh, first, as a member of the Ohio State Glee Club, I believe, yep. um, there are about 50 guys in this Glee Club, and then there was one pianist, a female. How in the world did you get to date the pianist and then marry her? <laughs> yeah, okay. So, true story. Um, yeah, so Kim was the accompanist, you know, for the group. And it was like dating a girl with, you know, 50 older brothers. Um, but I couldn't figure out for the life of me why nobody had asked this girl out. I guess a couple of people had made a few runs, you know, and, um, you know, nothing. they got repelled. Uh, and I'm like, this, wow, you know, she's just beautiful. She's talented. She's such a quality person. And, you know, I knew she was a strong believer and, uh, I, I just couldn't resist. Right. We were, we were friends. I knew her for a couple of years cause I was in the men's glee club for four years, all four years I was at OSU, but we started dating in college and she's, uh, a year, she graduated a year ahead of, of me. And uh, so we got married not too long, you know, after I graduated and got established. Um, but just an amazing, she's amazing at everything she does. Concert pianist, um, incredible singer, uh, comes from a really musical background. She, she sight reads Mozart. Like I read the comic books, you know, she is just an incredible player has accompanied. She was the, the person that if the faculty were doing a faculty recital, they would ask Kim to be their accompanist. That, that's neat. Now you mentioned Kim is, you know, like, like a professional or a professional, in, in some ways, maybe you are too. I mean, I know you've written music. I know you've recorded albums. I even know that you opened for Chicago uh, back in the day. What was that like? Uh, that was an incredible experience. Uh, a good buddy of mine, his name is Tim Farrell. Uh, he and I met at Ohio State, and we were both playing and singing. We were doing the singer-songwriter thing, and uh, we both played out, but we realized that our sets were really similar to each other. And we thought, well, wait a minute, if we become a duo, we can play for longer, which means we can make more money and uh, it'll be a lot more fun. Uh, so, you know, we would do harmonies and, you know, both of us play guitar, both of us sang. So it doubled the size of our set list, you know, almost. Um, but we were playing around Columbus and we were opening for other acts and we were doing some regional touring and that sort of thing. We probably played maybe 40 or 50 gigs a year. And uh, a good friend of mine, that I actually went to OSU with, her husband managed uh, Polaris Amphitheater, the big 15,000-seat amphitheater uh, that is now an Ikea, uh, but it was a Northeast. And I get a call while I'm on vacation. It was in the mid-'90s, uh, and I was on vacation, but I got a, a call and, and said, you know, hey, uh, what are you doing on August, whatever it was, I think August 5th or August 4th. And they said that, that Chicago was playing the Polaris Amphitheater, but because it's an outdoor venue, they really need an opening act and they were traveling with a comedian, but the comedian had hit it big and was doing some like Jay Leno tonight show kind of gig and bailed on the Chicago tour. And they couldn't come up with an opening act quick enough. Cause it was literally like days away. Um, and uh, I'm like, we're in. And then I called 
Tim Farrell, my singing partner, I said, hey, what are you doing? He goes, well, my family's in town. I said, well, you're going to buy him tickets because we're opening for Chicago on the main stage. And it was a ton of fun. We were a good fit for him because we kind of did that, you know, some adult contemporary music from the, the 70s. We did some cover stuff and um, it fit well with what they were doing. And they were super nice guys. And we had our own dressing room. We even got to kick our families out of our dressing room. It was hilarious. We had a a production assistant that was like, you know, it's customary for the artist to have a little time, alone time before the show. Do you want us to clear your dressing room? And we're both sitting there laughing. We're like, yeah, yeah, we do. Get all these bums out of here. So they did. (laughs) They were like, okay, everybody out. uh, But we had a blast. It was incredible to get to play through that kind of equipment, get to hear you know, get to hear your music coming back through a, a big PA system. And we didn't have time to tell everybody. So there were some people that had gone to the gig that didn't realize we were playing. And it was, it was funny to look out. I still remember a friend of mine was sitting in maybe row 20 or something. And I spotted him. I really couldn't acknowledge him or anything because I was busy at the moment, but he looked and then he looked again and then he started out right right and uh later our phone was ringing at home like wait a minute you know you guys did a nice job so that was a lot of fun and it opened up some other opportunities for us to play at polaris that's that's a great story uh jim really time is about over i, I have maybe a couple questions uh one more personal one that uh just i have to believe there's a story behind this but uh, i mentioned earlier that you're very well versed in fine arts or the fine arts um i heard a story that you either got a job or a promotion because you recognized some certain artwork on a wall at some operation. Is, is, what's that story all that's, about? That's actually a true story. I credit to my middle brother. I'm the youngest of three. My middle brother's a fine artist. He's a painter. He has a, uh, a master's, uh, an MF, MFA, and he's a working artist in Chicago. And uh, anyway, so we always we went to a lot of art museums as kids. and. But anyway, I was sitting in a job interview at a large real estate development company here. In their, I was interviewing for their marketing and PR department. And I sat in the, in the lobby and I noticed that there was this uh, tapestry kind of looking. It was a, a, woven, uh, a, a woven piece. And it, it looked like a Picasso. And I'm like, it has to be a Picasso. And I couldn't believe it. I, and and I, I asked in my interview, I said, uh, I said, I just have to ask because it's kind of a burning question. I said, is that a Picasso? And they, they were like, wow, you're in. You know, like, yeah, it is actually because the owner of the company, his mom uh, owned the Pace Gallery in New York, which was the foremost uh, modern art museum in New York City. Um, but the gentleman's name is Herb Klimscher and he owns the Klimscher Company, which is a real estate company. And Herb's a collector of fine art. He grew up with it. So he had a Louise Nevelson sculpture in his office and when I got to meet him, he, he said, well, I understood you recognized my Picasso out in the, the lobby. And I said, yeah, I was really kind of humbled to be next to it. And he goes, yeah, he says, that's, that's pretty good, he, but he's pretty obvious. But you have no idea who, who did this. And he looked at the sculpture, and, and I said, well, it's a Louise Nevelson. And at that point, he goes, he goes, he says, I don't care. He says, I'm not even sure what you're interviewing for, but you're hired. And he was half joking and half not. but. Um, Fortunately, I had just uh, uh, just seen it at an exhibition maybe 18 months earlier, 12 months earlier, and, and happened to be able to pull that out of thin air. But um, yeah, it was a really neat, it was neat to be able to work in an environment that was also an art gallery. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Hey, thanks for sharing that. Uh, my last question, as time is, is, is just about over with, is 
I try to ask, or I usually ask most of my guests this question, and that is, at this point in your life, as, as you deal with COVID, as your situation, your life situation, what's the Lord teaching you right now? Fear not. Don't be anxious for anything. Um, there's some loud voices that, that want us to be afraid, and there's a lot of loud voices that want us to be anxious. But the still small voice has been saying, fear not. Don't be anxious for anything. I'm, I'm in control. Um, now, I, I will not sit here and say that I've confidently practiced that every single day. There's been moments where you wake up and you feel like the world's tilted off of its axis. But then I chuckle and just go, it's just inconveniences, right? We, God's sitting on his throne and he's not pacing back and forth in heaven, wringing his hands, worried about all of this. He's, he's in command, no matter who's in office or who's not in office or or all these other things that we, we think are important. None of it's important in God's economy. And I think this, this is, uh, I deal with big things a lot better than I deal with little things. Like little annoying things like, a, you know, I drop my remote and the batteries fi- fall out of it. I'm, I'm so angry. Like, why didn't they design this better? And, you know, I get all wound up about that. But like really big things like pandemics, eh, I, you know, it's inconvenient. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but no, truth, truthfully, I, I don't want to make light of, of all the people that have, that have struggled and suffered and that have been impacted so negatively by it. We all have been impacted in some way and some far more than others. Uh, and I don't want to be flippant by any stretch. But I, but I will say that uh, this is a part of the world that we live in, and it's going to be like until Christ comes back. And uh, we have to live in the confidence that he's in, he's in command. There's no better time than during a difficult period like the pandemic Thank you, Mark. Thanks to look up, for the school, to look unto Jesus, for He is our rock and our salvation. Thank you for listening to Jim, thanks for joining Stories me podcast. this week Brought on the to you Cedarville by Stories Cedarville Podcast. University. It was my pleasure if to talk with you. If you were encouraged by this conversation, like I was, please share this episode with a friend. If you know of an awesome Cedarville story, share it with us. We would love to showcase how God is at work in the Cedarville family. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another Cedarville story for God's glory.